0: I want to welcome you this morning, whether this is your first time with us, whether you've been a part of this congregation your entire life. Please know that wherever you are on your spiritual journey, whether you're gathered here with us in the sanctuary, whether you are joining us online from the comfort of your own couch, we're glad that you are here. We have been, over the last several weeks, looking at a series that we've called Follow Me and today we're wrapping it all up. We've been talking for the last several weeks about, about how do we follow Jesus? How do we walk with God? This image of walking with God is one that gets repeated over and over again in the Scripture and is oftentimes referred to what it means to be a mature Christian. And so we've been talking about some practices, some disciplines Uh, that will help us to close the gap between the Christians that we are and the Christians that we want to be. And so we've been looking, as I said, at some spiritual disciplines that have been taught throughout the Bible, that were modeled by Jesus, that have been practiced by generations of Christians for the last 2,000 years and I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that uh, I was asked a couple of years back about the expectations of membership of a congregation, about this congregation by someone who was interested in becoming a part, to becoming a member of University Christian Church. And to be honest with you, I didn't really have a great response. I didn't have a good answer. I'd thought about it, but I'd never really articulated it. And so we sat down and we put together what we have now identified and articulated as the discipleship path. That included these five essential steps that we have looked at for the last five weeks. And so, for the last couple of years, every new member that has joined University Christian Church has been told that this is what it means to be a part of this church, that these are the expectations of membership, that we follow Jesus in these five ways, that we worship every Sunday. If we're in town, we're in church, or if we're joining us online or listening on the radio, that we worship, that we make worship a regular rhythm of our lives, and that we pray every day. We pray every day for our world, that we pray for our church, for our church family, we pray for our pastors, and they can trust, you can trust, that we pray for you, that we understand that. A disciplined prayer life is absolutely necessary for us to stay in a proper alignment with God. We talked about study that that involves a, a small group or a Sunday school class, that there is some way, some way that you are involved in growing in your faith so that you have the tools to do your own theological work. This is not a church that tells you what to believe. We simply invite you by giving you the tools to discern for yourself what your faith will mean in your life, and that you serve, that you find a way to serve God by serving the church, that you give first to God through our tithes and through our offerings, that we cultivate a pattern of generosity in our lives so that we are regularly generous towards other people. That fifth one is the one that we are looking at today. And so my hope in this series is that it has inspired us all, whether we are a new member that has joined in the last couple of years, or we have been a part of this congregation our entire life, that wherever we are in that journey, that it has inspired us and challenged us all to be committed to following Jesus in this way, on this path. Whether you're a new member, whether you've been a part your entire life, that you will lean into, that you will live up to these expectations, and that as a congregation, we can be collectively committed to growing together, to living out our faith more effectively, walking together more closely with God. As I said, a couple of weeks ago, I will repeat it again today, the churches that are growing, churches that are thriving, the churches that are most alive are those congregations that set the same expectations of members that Jesus set of his disciples. And so that's why we have articulated and been clear about what is expected of disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, our text this morning to help us wrap all this up is from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. People often come to me and say, Russ, I've, I've never really read the Bible. Where should I start? And I always point to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It, start there. It is in many ways sort of the essential teachings of Jesus, the Cliff Notes version of the gospel, if you will that if this is all that we knew about the teachings of Jesus, that in some ways it would be enough. In this teaching, Jesus inspires us, Jesus challenges us to be filled with gratitude and with generosity, to shape our hearts around the gifts that God entrusts to us. Today's scripture is from the Gospel of Matthew, Chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Here begins the reading. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Where your treasure is, Jesus says, There your heart will be also. Now, I recognize that it may seem strange to some that as we explore the essential practices of discipleship, those things that that shape our hearts, that we are looking today at the connection between money and the spiritual life. Because things like worship and prayer, reading scripture, serving God, those things are clearly spiritual practices. But how we spend our money But yet, I would pause right there and just remind you that when we read the words of Jesus in the gospel, that he spoke more about money and possessions than prayer, than study, than scripture combined. In fact, scholars will count and notice that about 66% of what he talked about had something to do with money and possessions. He makes it clear that our relationship with money can either sabotage our spiritual life or it can deepen it. Now, you all probably know what a selfie is, right? If not, let me show you. A selfie is this. You take a picture. Thank you. Does my hair look all right? All right. Everybody wave. It doesn't, it doesn't look good. All right, all right. So, by the way, by the way, if you hold it up higher, you don't have as many double chins. I've learned this the hard way. People sometimes say, Russ, your sermons don't have practical advice. There you go. Hold it higher. Where was I? I I've I've lost my train of thought. So, Dan Hutchins is an accountant that has written a book that talks about how you can tell a lot about a person's values by looking at their tax returns. A tax return, he says, is a selfie of the soul. He and his associates have developed something called a tax return credit score that looks at the ratio between the mortgage interest that is deducted in connection with our income. And then the third piece is our charitable giving. He says that in his estimate, estimation, as he looks at the ratio of those three things, that he has even a better indication than our credit score of our ability to repay a loan that may be given to us. That is, in his words, a tax return credit score. That those that tend to give away more to charity, that make charitable donations, tend to live below their means and show that they were oftentimes thinking of other people by being generous. Your tax return, he says, is a selfie. It tells you something about your values. Now, admittedly, I'm not an accountant. In fact, part of the reason that I became a religion major at TCU was because I wasn't required to take math classes. (laughs) But yet, I find it fascinating. Because here Hutchins is describing in the language of economics and accounting what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, that what we do with our money tells us something about the condition of our own hearts. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what you do with your money, what truly matters, describes something about your character, about about who you are. It's a picture, it's a a selfie of your soul about what's going on inside your heart. Now, in another part of the teachings of Jesus, in Luke's gospel, Jesus said this. He said, one's life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Say that with me, will you? One's life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Now, how many of us believe that to be true? Not everybody, did you notice that? Not everybody. I think most of us would sort of say that we believe that to be true, that that our life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions, but yet, have you noticed? Have you noticed that there are a thousand different voices telling us a thousand different ways, a thousand different times, that the opposite is true, that our life does consist on the abundance of our possessions? Those ads pop-ups on social media, commercials on TV, they are continually shouting at us, telling us that if you just had this, your life would be so much better. If you just had this, it shouts uh, shouts at us over and over and over again that life really does consist of the abundance of our possessions, but it doesn't work that way, does it? There was an ancient philosophy taught by the Greeks that taught that the highest good in life is pleasure, and that the goal of life is to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. Although that's an ancient philosophy, I would say that in many ways it is still a guiding principle, sort of the default position of most of our lives, that the goal of life is to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. The Greeks referred to this philosophy, this school of thought, as hedonism. The Greek word for pleasure, hedonism. Now, let me be clear. Seeking seeking pleasure over pain is not necessarily a bad thing. If you seek pain over pleasure, there's other issues that we need to talk about. (laughs) But yet, if that is your primary aim in life, if you're understanding about what life is all about, you will find, friends, that satisfaction is elusive, and that a deep spiritual life is difficult, if not impossible, to attain. But yet we've bought into this idea that if we just had more, that if we just had more, we'd be able to experience more pleasure, that we'd finally be happy. Now, modern psychologists have identified, they speak of something called hedonic adaptation, sometimes referred to as the hedonic treadmill. In church, even if you've never heard of this, my guess is is that most of us, if not all of us, including your pastor, have experienced this and continues on a regular basis. It goes like this. We want that thing, whatever it is. Let's say it's the newest version of the iPhone. Mine's old. I've had it like two years, (laughs) and now they've come out with a 13, and I want that. But what happens, right, if we want that thing, that possession, whatever it is, we wait for it, we want for it, we work for it, and then we get it, and it brings us a sense of joy for a moment, and pretty soon that joy starts to diminish, and pretty soon our mind adapts. We jump on that treadmill and we start to think, what do we want next? Because there's always going to be a new version of the iPhone. There's always going to be a new model of our car. There's always going to be new. There's always going to be more. When hedonism is the way of life, you never find that satisfaction. You are constantly hungry for something else, Now, no one in the Bible better expresses this idea, this idea of hedonic adaptation, than the writer of Ecclesiastes. In the book, the author, who is traditionally believed to be King Solomon, devotes his entire life to acquiring pleasure and escaping pain. Listen to how he describes, looking back upon his life, as he gets close to the end, he looks back upon his life and he says this, As he describes his hedonic yearnings, I built houses and I planted vineyards for myself. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had ever been before me in Jerusalem. And I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, delights of the flesh, many concubines. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. Now I think most of us would look at that and think, man, that guy had it going on. He was living the good life. But yet, as he looks back upon his life, do you know how he describes this? This refrain that runs through the book over and over again, he says it was all meaningless. It's vanity, he said it was like chasing after the wind. It's not that those things can't bring us a sense of pleasure, they can. But if that's what your life is built upon, if that's what you live for, like the, like the writer of Ecclesiastes, we find that we're just chasing after the wind. That that is not where happiness is ultimately found. That it's actually found somewhere else. And so this morning, I want to offer a couple of habits, a couple of practices, a couple of postures of the heart, if you will, that will that help us live the life that I think Jesus invites us to live, longs for us to live, to help us possess our possessions so that our possessions don't possess us, if you know what I mean. The first is gratitude. Gratitude. Which is what, ironically enough, the Stoic philosophers saw as the opposite of hedonism. They believed that happiness, that joy, that life was found not in acquiring the things that you don't have yet, but instead of learning to want what you already have. How do we cultivate that desire for what we already have? Actually, it's pretty simple. Wanting what you already have comes from giving thanks for what you already possess. Wanting what you already have comes from giving thanks for what you already possess. Rather than wanting the new iPhone 13, perhaps I should give thanks for the one that I have that's paid for. There is something about our giving thanks for what you already have that makes you appreciate it, makes you feel content with what you've got instead of wanting something else, something more, something newer. And by the way, it doesn't just work for possessions. I would argue that it also works for relationships and marriages too. My wife Kelly and I will celebrate this week our 10th wedding anniversary. And we are going away on vacation. Don't call us. We won't answer. (laughs) And every day, every day I give thanks to God for my wife, Kelly, for the family that we have created, for the life that we have built. Every day I give thanks for her. It is the greatest blessing of my life. And my hope and my greatest prayer is that at least on my good days, she gives thanks to God for me. And that helps us to want what we already have in each other rather than wondering if we might be happier if we had a newer model. When gratitude is the primary posture of our heart, we live with a sense of contentment And joy. Now the other side of the coin of gratitude is generosity. The older I get, the longer I live, the more I discover that the key to finding joy and fulfillment in life with walking with God is generosity towards God and towards others. That generosity is meant to be the shape of our heart, the way in which we live. Scripture tells us that we are created in the image of God and God is a generous God. And so the posture of our heart, the rhythm of our lives is meant to be lived in a spirit of generosity. And when we do, it changes things for us because when we are generous towards God through other people, we find the sense of contentment. We live with a greater joy. We know, don't we? We feel that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Think about Christmas morning. What is the best part of Christmas morning? Is it opening the gifts that someone gave you or watching those that you gave, that you carefully chose, that you cared, wrapped to watch the joy on their face when they opened that gift? My guess is that all of us know that it is more blessed to give than receive. Now, we talk around here, when we're talking about our tithes and our offerings, that it is more about our need to give than the church's need to receive. That we do this for our own spiritual health, for our own joy as much as anything else. And yet, and yet when we think about this, I want us to think about our church, about what we do collectively as well as Individually. Because what we do together as a church that is accomplished through the ministries of the church that is supported by the gifts and the offerings and the tithes that we bring and give to the church. And every year, typically in January, we invite you to fill out an estimate of giving card, a pledge card, if you will. And that card is an expression of our faith and our devotion Of all that you've given to us, God, we say, of all that you have given us, this is part of what we give back to you with glad and grateful hearts. And in our family's budget, for Kelly and I, it is the single biggest item outside of our mortgage. And it is the greatest joy that we have, a tangible way to show our love and our gratitude, not only to God, but also for this church. This church that we love so much. It is an investment in this church that does, that has an impact in the world, the lives that it changed, the hearts that it helps transform, because what we do together. And there is joy in that, isn't there? Let me give you an example of that. We, we have been talking today. Jessica prayed for them, the refugees that have been living with us, the two families that are with us. And over the last couple of weeks since they've been here, there has been this outpouring of love and support. Volunteers have been showing up. Donations have been coming out. We sent out this last week an email that invited you uh, to to help us furnish this apartment that they hope to get soon. And within two days, within two days, about 90% of the things to furnish an entire apartment were already reserved and so if you weren't Johnny on the spot, if you weren't quick to do it, it was sort of like when you, when you procrastinate getting that wedding gift and you show up and look at the register and all that's left is like the serving spoon, right? And you're like, here, happy marriage, here's the serving spoon, you know, it's like that. But yet there are still some things on that list They need a TV, they need some bikes, they need bike helmets, they need some nightstands. There's all sorts of things left. And so I invite you, encourage you to help us help them. And that's just one example of what we do together. And I could name a thousand more because together, together we impact the world by what we do. When we collectively come together and offer to God our gratitude and our generosity, that this is the first gift that we give to God as a way of saying, God, I want to walk with you. This is a tiny reflection of my desire to give you everything that I have, including myself. You see, we're also meant to not just give as a church, but also to give generously on our own, to live out this daily rhythm of our lives, the rhythm of living generously. Winston Churchill once said, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. We make a living by what we get, we make a life by what we give. In 30 years of ministry, I can tell you that I've met a lot of people that are really good at making a living that haven't yet figured out how to make a life. So here's how I want to help. Some ideas, some thoughts to help you get into a generous rhythm as you walk with God in your life. Just as we've challenged you over the last several weeks, each week there's been a challenge to worship every week, to pray five times a day to join a small group, to study, to, 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 to discover ways that we can grow deeper in our faith, to, to do five acts of kindness every single day. Today, I want to give you a new challenge, and that is simply, I want to challenge you to do five acts of extraordinary generosity every month. And I recognize that extraordinary is a relative term. But it means simply doing something over and over what you normally do. And for some, extraordinary maybe two or three dollars. For others, a thousand dollars may be easy as anything. So maybe it's a large tip to a wait person that you can see could use some help. Maybe it's a, a meal cooked for them, someone down the street, maybe it's a financial gift to a nonprofit. And I recognize that these are all closely aligned with these acts of kindness, but it's actually giving of something that you have to help someone in need. As you practice these five extraordinary acts, I want you to think and consider and to pray, how do I become a person who lives generously? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Jesus says. And there's a clear connection between the relationship that we have with our money and our possessions and our spiritual life. And as you snap a selfie of your soul, simply ask, look at the reflection there and ask, is your generosity, is your giving an accurate reflection of your heart? You see, we are meant to practice generosity every day in the same way that that an organist, a pianist, a musician will practice a new piece until they know it by heart. Because when we practice generosity over and over again, our hearts become attuned to joy. It becomes a rhythm of our lives. And we walk more closely with Jesus. May God help us May God help us to become the generous people that God created us to be.